Well, good uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, I just wanted to begin with an expression of concern about uh, the health of Her Majesty the Queen. We understand, based on a statement from Buckingham Palace, that she is under active medical supervision and that her family, her children, have uh, gathered to be with her at Balmoral Castle. Uh, this, of course, is the year that we celebrate her 70th year of service uh, to Canada and the Commonwealth as our head of state. And I just want to uh, say that uh, my prayers, and I hope those of uh, most Albertans, are, are with Her Majesty uh, for her uh, swift recovery, and uh, we are, our prayers are with her family at this difficult time. Uh, I am here today with Alberta's Minister of Justice, Tyler Shandro, and Alberta's Chief Firearms Officer, Terry Bryant, with two important updates on the Alberta government's fight for a fair deal uh, in uh, the federal, with respect to the federal government. Since we were elected three years ago, we've sought to use every legal tool at our disposal to protect Alberta's vital economic interests against Ottawa's repeated attacks. We built successful coalitions with our provincial allies uh, to make a united front with Ottawa on many issues, to demand common sense policies like national resource corridors, uh, to oppose increases in the federal carbon tax uh, during record inflation, and importantly, to stand firm against Justin Trudeau's No More Pipelines Law Bill C-69, uh, which was struck down by the Alberta Appeal Court and which all 10 provinces have now intervened to support uh, provincial jurisdiction under the Constitution uh, in the appeal pending before the Supreme Court of Canada. But this is an ongoing battle, and the time has come once again for Alberta to exercise our authority uh, within Confederation to stand up and defend our interests from the Trudeau government. Yesterday, Alberta's Attorney General filed notice with the Federal Court of Canada that Alberta's government will intervene in a legal challenge of the federal move to lift, list all plastics as, quotes, a toxic substance under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. It's clear to Alberta that the federal government's actions are unconstitutional infringement on our provincial jurisdiction under the Constitution. The federal government has once again drifted out of its lane, straying into constitutional territory, and has no legal right to be in it. This includes provincial jurisdiction over property rights and civil rights, which will be reflected uh, in our legal submission. Alberta's government has never taken the decision to appeal to the courts on um, constitutional matters lightly. It's always been a, a tool of last resort, but one that we have effectively wielded in the past when Alberta's interests were jeopardized. So let me be clear. What the federal government is doing with this listing presents a serious threat to our economic interests. Alberta has the largest petrochemical sector in the country, and it is set for a massive expansion. Thanks in part to uh, the petrochemical strategy in Alberta's recovery plan, we have attracted an additional $18 billion of announced investments in low-emitting petrochemical projects for products that the world needs. If we are going to succeed in the future energy transition, we will actually need uh, the lighter and more efficient products that are produced from petrochemicals, for example, for the transportation sector, for automobiles, uh, and for aircraft. Uh, and uh, that $18 billion of announced investments is just the beginning. We believe that we are well on track to achieve uh, our $30 billion goal of new pet cam investments 
uh, much of it linked to our broader strategy of uh, creating jobs while reducing emissions, like, for example, Dow's announcement of the $12 billion uh, world's first net zero ethane cracker uh, in the industrial heartland east of Edmonton. Labeling plastics toxic substances is already having a negative impact on Alberta's responsible and growing pet cam industry by creating uncertainty for those investors. An analysis by the Ministry of Jobs, Economy and Innovation estimated uh, that uh, potentially over $30 billion is at risk. The federal government has ignored all opposing evidence as well as the uh, innovation that we are seeing in the industry, including the development. Uh, led by provinces and the industry, of a circular economy for plastics where they are recycled and where they re-enter the market. By making unilateral decisions to label plastic items as toxic, the federal government has demonstrated that it's not interested in an evidence-based approach to the subject, like so many others that relate to Alberta's economic interests. Uh, Alberta is intervening in a case brought to the federal court by the Responsible Plastic Use Coalition that includes Dow, Imperial Oil, and Nova Chemicals. The parties are seeking a judicial review of the decision to add plastic manufactured items to a list of toxic substances specified in Schedule 1 of the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. The original applicants brought their case to the court on several grounds, but the constitutional argument boils down to this that regulating plastic manufactured items as toxic substances falls outside the federal government's jurisdiction over criminal law matters. This is properly a provincial regulatory matter and not a federal criminal matter. As I've said on previous issues, I'll be asking my fellow premiers to join Alberta in fighting this latest example of federal overreach. In fact, I signed letters to my colleagues on that yesterday. Uh, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to come together on a united front as we have on so many other issues. Now, we're also here to discuss another example of bad federal policy and how Alberta's government is standing up to defend the interests of Albertans. Uh, Let me begin by saying that uh, one of the ideas that came out of our Fair Deal panel was uh, for Alberta to take greater control over the application of federal firearms legislation. Uh, For many years, federal liberal governments have been unnecessarily harassing law-abiding firearms owners rather than focusing on the criminals who actually abuse firearms in in dangerous ways. In fact, the Trudeau government lifted the mandatory minimum prison sentences instituted by the Stephen Harper government for the criminal abuse of firearms. So they've lightened criminal penalties for uh, criminals abusing firearms while continuing to use regulatory power to harass Uh, peaceful, law-abiding citizens who uh, safely own firearms as part of their lives. We've seen the Liberals continue to, as I say, penalize law-abiding firearm owners, target shooters, and hunters with useless virtue-signaling legislation that won't stop violent crime and will simply make criminals out of good citizens. As a result of their latest firearms ban, a host of legal license applications and transfers are now sitting in federal limbo, just like they can't process passports on time. Apparently, they can't get that done for firearms licenses. We're now waiting uh, for Ottawa to fix the mess. uh, Excuse me. Some people are waiting for over six months for these licenses and these transfers to be approved by the federal bureaucracy. 
But Alberta uh, will no longer wait for Ottawa to fix the mess that they have caused. So today, I'm happy to announce that Alberta's government is significantly increasing our support to Alberta's chief firearms officer, so those transfers can happen right here in Alberta. Minister Shander will provide more details on that shortly. We created the Office of the Chief Firearms Officer. As I said, it's something that um, provinces have been legally entitled to do since uh, the mid-1990s, but our government was the first in Alberta to decide to actually appoint Alberta's own Chief Firearms Officer uh, to ensure a common-sense application of the law. And that's exactly what Terry Bryant, Alberta's first chief, chief firearms officer, is doing. Alberta's go- government will never hesitate to take action when our province or our economy or our constitutional jurisdiction is threatened by Ottawa. And today's announcement underscores that. With that, I'll invite uh, Minister Shandro to provide remarks, and he'll be followed by Chief Firearms Officer uh, Bryant. Thank you very much, Premier, and good morning, everyone. As Premier said, this began a little more than a year ago when Alberta set up its very own Provincial Firearms Office. Today, I'm proud to announce that we are now greatly expanding the Alberta Chief Firearms Office by providing an in-year funding increase of 700000 growing to $7 million next year with $5.2 million in earmarked funding annually thereafter. And this is funding that will allow us to create 40 new positions greatly expanding the chief firearms officer's ability to process license applications, transfers, um, authorizations to carry, and other tasks much faster, and to do it right here in Alberta. There are over 340,000 licensed law-abiding firearms uh, owners in Alberta, making our province home to the third largest and fastest growing rate of firearms ownership in the country. Many of these firearms owners have had to deal with the Canadian Firearms Program, which is a federal program administered by the RCMP in Miramichi in New Brunswick. And this program is poorly managed, it's understaffed, and let's be honest, it's subject to the political whims of Ottawa. To make matters worse, recent federal legislation has effectively banned handguns, leading to an unprecedented increase in sales and transfers of more than 178,000 handguns since this spring. The Canadian Firearms Program has effectively shrugged their shoulders, leaving wait times to skyrocket. Thankfully, there is something that we can do about it here in Alberta. By creating the Alberta Firearms Chief Firearms Office, we have been able to step in to fill the void with the ACFO staff processing sales and transfers as fast as they can. Unfortunately, Despite CFO Bryan's best efforts, we have been unable to keep up with demand. Funding provided today will patriate administrative work that Alberta is able to legally take over under the Firearms Act, enabling this work to fall under the direct authority, under the supervision, and under the management of the Alberta Chief Firearms Officer. Jobs that have otherwise been filled by RCMP staff in Miramichi in New Brunswick will be given to Albertans, who will provide services to Albertans. These extra staff will allow Alberta's government to provide faster, to provide more efficient services, and will better position our government to protect firearms owners' property rights, expanding Alberta's autonomy in the Confederation. 
And I want to thank CFO Bryant for her tireless work over the past year. CFO Bryant has traveled the province, meeting with over 40 different groups throughout the province and attending countless gun shows to speak to thousands of firearms officers, or sorry, firearms owners. And I, I think she's, she's made the joke to me that if there's a gun show in this province that she's not at, it's because there's another gun show at the same time that she's had somewhere else in this province. Without CFO Bryant's hard work and relentless advocacy, we would not be able to make the announcement that we're making today. So thank you very much, and I'll now turn over the podium to CFO Bryant to provide some remarks. Attorney. Thank you, Premier and Minister, and good morning, everyone. It's an incredible honour to hold the distinction of Alberta's first provincially appointed Chief Firearms Officer under the Firearms Act. I'm very proud of all that my dedicated staff and I have accomplished since we opened our doors on September 1st last year. Since then, Alberta's Chief Firearms Office has provided crucial public safety supports to local police services and the province's justice system reviewing applications, and conducting background checks to ensure those using and buying firearms do not represent a risk to the public is critical in supporting safe communities throughout Alberta. As the Minister mentioned, we faced a significant backlog of cases from the start. We took extraordinary steps throughout our first year to work through the backlog to address these unprecedented circumstances. We consistently pressed the Federal Service Centre to meet Albertans' needs. A chronic challenge to recruit and retain Federal Processing Center resources in Miramichi has seriously affected the firearms program in Alberta. In addition to these challenges, our workload has been compounded by Federal decisions. This includes the looming Federal buyback or confiscation program and the national handgun freeze, which continues to clash with Alberta's firearms culture and provides little in terms of public safety benefit. Today's announcement will support us in adequately staffing our office with the focus on hiring local to better serve Albertans. It will significantly enhance our level of service to align with the expectations of Albertans in keeping our communities safe. And it will support our work, which helps sustain economic activity associated with lawful firearms ownership in Alberta through inspections and approvals of shooting ranges, as well as supporting firearms businesses. I will continue to engage with Albertans and connect with stakeholder groups in Alberta's firearms community and beyond. And my office will continue to advocate for common sense federal legislation in support of law-abiding firearms owners such as farmers, ranchers, hunters, target shooters, businesses, and collectors. Heading into our second year, bolstered by today's announcement, Alberta's Chief Firearms Office will further strengthen public safety and ensure those in need of firearms services get the assistance they deserve. Thank you. Thank you, Premier Minister Shandro and CFO Bryant. This concludes the formal portion of today's media availability. We'll now move over to a media Q&A. Uh, as you'll see at the front of the room, there is a unimic for uh, media questions. Please limit yourself to one question and one follow-up, as well as identify your uh, name and your outlet prior to asking a question. Uh, and with that, if we'll take any questions from the floor... Oh, no. <laughs> uh, Emma Graney with the Global Mail. Hey. Um, question, sorry, this is not for you. This is about plastics. So, um, not sure who wants to address this. Just, and I have a question to follow up, but I do just want to clarify here. There are two um, plastics things before the courts are responsible 
Plastic Use Coalition. They had a July 15 court case and they also have a 2021 challenge. Can you just clarify which you're going to be an intervener in? We'll be intervening in, in both. In, in both, both of them? Both okay, so the heart of that too is that basically they're arguing that, you know, under CEPA, uh, the federal government has said that there's no actual... Well, they're saying that there's no evidence that plastic is actually toxic or that the federal government hasn't proven so. So does the Alberta government then share that view that plastics are not actually toxic? Well, this time, that, that may be a question that's best directed to, to our client, which is going to be Alberta Environment and Parks. So they're the instructing client who will be providing us... We're at JSG going to be obviously providing the, the work to, for us to be able to intervene and defending the, the provincial jurisdiction. But that may be a question that's best answered by the folks in Alberta Environment and Parks. But there's no one here from, from there. So I'm just, can, can you clarify, like, do you believe that plastics are toxic or not? Because that's the heart of that case, right? Sorry, Mr. <clears throat> Premier. No, because they're not. You've, you're holding a plastic phone there. I don't, think you're, you're, I don't think you believe that it has the toxicity of arsenic which is the, the same category under which this has been listed. So um, we cannot live our modern lives without petrochemical products, without plastic products. We cannot achieve carbon reduction goals without the efficiency, the lightness of uh, plastic products. Um, the plastics industry is very focused with the support of provincial governments on reducing uh, plastic waste through creating a circular economy, um, of recycling, but they're also focused on reducing emissions in the petrochemical production process. You know, the Dow project here, the $12 billion plus net zero ethane cracker, the first in the world, is a fantastic example of that. So uh, while the industry is investing massively in uh, becoming more environmentally responsible, Ottawa, uh, for, in, I think, political reasons, decided to say that plastics have the same risk as toxic toxins like arsenic, which is clearly unscientific. It's not supported by any scientific evidence. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we're challenging this. Because if Canada is the only country in the world that says that plastic products are the equivalent of arsenic, are lethal, then, then it begs the question, why would the industry invest here? When they could go anywhere else in the world that treats plastics regulates the industry, yes, but treats them like uh, inert um, and safe products. And, and just on that point then, um, as part of the natural gas strategy in 2020, um, Alberta wanted to create a centre of excellence for plastic recycling by 2030. So what's actually happening on that front, if anything? Actually, a lot of progress. And Minister uh, Isaac, Minister of Environment and Parks, has been working uh, with her federal counterpart uh, and her provincial counterparts in exactly that. They just had a, a federal provincial territorial meeting of environmental ministers where this was, was on the agenda. Uh, and uh, we we do believe that uh, that's part of our pet chem strategy, which is uh, to make Alberta truly a center of excellence on the circular economy. We we're ahead, of, we believe, of other provinces on that. Um, and part of the reason is that we do have such a large petrochemical industry here, which is about to uh, barring uh, a lack of investor confidence from these federal regulations, is about to expand massively. William Amelin, Radio Canada. Uh, my question is for you, and it will be in French. Uh, donc, vous voulez contester la loi fédérale sur le plastique à usage unique. Pouvez-vous m'expliquer pourquoi vous voulez absolument le faire? Parce que uh, l'Alberta a une industrie très importante de pétrochimique pour les plastiques. 
Euh, et nous avons attiré presque euh, 20 milliards de dollars de nouveaux investissements dans l'industrie, là, pour créer les emplois et diversifier notre économie. Mais les réglementations euh, fédérales euh, posent une menace à, à ces investissements et la confiance du secteur euh, pétrochimique qui est essentielle à la diversification de l'économie albertaine. Euh, deuxièmement, parce que les réglementations fédérales sont une euh, ingérence dans la juridiction euh, provinciale. Et comme toujours, notre gouvernement défend euh, la, la juridiction de l'Alberta au sein de la Constitution canadienne. Alors, euh, pour, pour deux raisons, une économique, l'autre constitutionnelle, puis euh, c'est une ingérence bizarre du fédéral à dire que les plastiques représentent une, une, euh, sont toxiques comme arsenic. C'est farfelu, ça. C'est un geste politique, pas scientifique, avec les conséquences potentielles euh, négatives euh, au plan économique. Just a quick follow-up question. Uh, uh, just for those following, I basically repeated what I said earlier in, uh, about the plastics ban in, in English. Yeah. Uh, I was, was curious to know if there's another prime minister of the, of the, in Canada that support, would support your... Uh, Illegal, uh... Uh, oui, j'espère que oui. Uh, je viens de... Oh, sorry, why am I doing that? That was an English question. Oh, uh, you can do it in French if okay. you want after that. <laughs> um, okay. En espagnol? No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm completely confused this morning. Um, the, um, so, yeah, I've just written to the premiers about this. I did raise it at the Council of the Federation of Victoria in July. Uh, there is some interest, I think, from some other provinces. Uh, I know that Quebec has a large petrochemical industry, for example, as does Ontario. They're following this closely. We hope that they will join us. Um, je l'ai soulevé uh, avec uh, les premiers ministres à Victoria en juillet, et je viens d'envoyer une lettre à tous les premiers ministres provinciaux hier à cet égard. Je sais que les provinces de l'Ontario, le Québec, ils ont les grandes uh, industries pétrochimiques comme l'Alberta, et ils le suivent de près. Uh, et j'espère que certaines autres provinces uh, se joignent en Alberta pour uh, mettre uh, en cause uh, ces réglementations fédérales. Morning, Scott Dipple from CBC Calgary. I have a question on the, uh, well, a few questions, I guess, on the firearms matter. So I don't know if the minister Please. or the CFO would. Sure. Um, just wondering if you can provide a bit more of the detail in terms of uh, will Alberta's, um, the, the process for approving applications or reviewing applications, will that be centralized? Will it be Calgary-Edmonton? And and uh, just detail in terms of, uh, you know, this, the service promise, I guess, in terms of the delays that applicants are facing right now through the federal process. What can people expect through a provincial process? Okay, so uh, there are two big areas uh, that I'll address. One is applications for firearms licenses, a possession and acquisition license, or PAL, as we usually refer to it, and also uh, the uh, handgun transfer issue. So on the uh, PAL issue, um, we inherited a backlog uh, of these files. Normally, these file, the way these files are, are done is... Uh, they're submitted to the central processing unit in Miramichi. Um, they deal with the easy cases. So if there are no flags, nothing that suggests there's a problem with either the initial application or the renewal, they deal with that. And then they send the more difficult ones to us if there's something that requires an investigation. Approximately, 
It's about 95% done in Miramichi and about 5% done here in terms of number of cases. Although in terms of resources, of course, the cases that we are dealing with are more labor intensive because they require an investigation. Okay, And so that investigation might be as little as a phone call or it might be several days. Um, so what we have, uh, what this would do is bring everything back to us. And the benefit of that is it would by providing a, a one-stop process, um, it eliminates things falling between the cracks. We often, for example, I go to gun shows, I have people say, well, where is my application? They don't know where it is. It's in, in Mirashi. Is it in, is it in uh, Calgary, Edmonton? Um, you know, it's uh, a bit of a, a confusion. The um, second area is the handgun transfers. Um, these or it's important to remember that each one of these handgun transfers in Canada is individually vetted. So uh, there's not, um, you know, it, it's not like somebody can just get a permit and go up and buy a whole bunch of things and, and that's the end of it. Every one of those uh, transactions is individually, individually vetted. And the, um, the backlog has arisen because there are a vast number of people who are seriously affected by this legislation. So, for example, uh, although most of the handguns were sold quite quickly, the ones that were in stores, um, people who are elderly, who have a large investment in their handguns, they need to sell them before they become unsaleable, or they may want to pass them on to their uh, heirs. So it's a huge infringement on on uh, Albertans' property rights uh, to potentially render valueless a very substantial investment that many people have. So they've rushed to, in to try and get these transfers done, but the uh, federal processing unit, which is understaffed, and, and the people who work there, let me be clear, the people who work there are great. I have met some of them, spoken to them. Many of the people who are working there are great, but they're handicapped by the fact there's not enough of them, and this initial... Uh, federal legislation, or uh, well, it's legislation. It isn't quite in place yet, but, but presumably will be um, soon. Um, has massively increased the volumes. So, with that uh, number, vast number of transfers, uh, they simply can't keep up. They have been told explicitly that it's not a priority to deal with them. But I mean, when I talk to people who may have a massive investment that they see potentially dissipating due to this uh, misguided federal legislation, it's a priority for them, and it's a priority for me, and it's a priority for everyone in my office. And so we have been assisting Miramichi, despite being you know, backlogged and, and overloaded with other things, we have been assisting them, and we're going to be continuing to step that up in order to do our very best to make sure that Albertans' property rights are respected and that uh, to the extent that it's possible within the framework of the federal legislation, we ensure that people are able to recognize the value of their, uh, realize the value of the firearms uh, property that they have legally acquired or to pass that property on to their heirs. What, but what do you think that the change will be in terms of the improved service to Albertans? How much quicker do you think, the, you know, the, the vast majority of the applications can be approved? Oh, well, uh, the service standard is 45 days. That's how fast they're supposed to be done because there is a 28-day waiting period in there. So you take 28 days, a little bit of time for processing, 45 days. 
you know, something like up to two months, I think, is a reasonable time. You know, uh, it won't always be exactly 45 days. Um, but I think up to two months is a reasonable period of time for normal applications. Okay, uh, there's always some that are complicated because there might be a court issue outstanding with someone or something like that. Uh, right now, uh, people are often for simple applications running 9, 10, 12 months. So uh, it will take us some time to get our staff on board, security cleared, trained up, and so on. But uh, I intend to get that uh, turnaround time down to something approaching that service standard, 45 days, two months, Great. instead of... Six months to 12. Right. Sure. And Scott, just to maybe reiterate something that, that a point that Terry made, that she actually has that experience in being able to deal with backlogs her in her office. As she said, that when she inherited a lot of the files that her office was doing when they came into to the job just a little more than a year ago, that the, the previous officer had let build up over time a, a backlog that her and her, her staff had to inherit and get through and deal with those those applications. I think there's also something to be said when we talk about backlogs. It's really important that when there is a backlog, there's a safety aspect too, that when staff are, as, as Terry said, handicapped by lack of resources and, and those backlogs build up over time, that when a file is you know addressed by someone reviewing it, that um, I think there's a concern that the, the person going through that application isn't going to be, when there is a concern about safety, not going through as, as robustly as they should be. So there should be time spent on, on those, those types of files. And then when there are files, when there aren't concerns, being able to... Do you want to speak a little bit more about that safety aspect, Terry? So, so one of the important aspects of the Canadian Firearms Program... Uh, and in particular the possession and acquisition licenses for firearms, is that we have something called continuous eligibility. And so people have to be continuously eligible. It's not like a, once something was, um, a permit was granted that there was nothing else until the next time it was renewed. Uh, if you fail to be eligible at any point in time, it can be revoked. So we get uh, information from a variety of sources um, on a daily basis about police incidents, and we may have to decide whether, you know, was this incident something that requires uh, addressing by uh, revocation of a license? Uh, and there are also, uh, you know, when we do... Um, uh, when we do renewals, uh, there is information that wouldn't necessarily come to us through that channel. Things like uh, people's responses to uh, stressful life events, um, whether they've perhaps had mental health challenges or things of that nature. And that's the opportunity where we can address that and make sure that those um, that anyone who has a firearms license continues to um, uh, to be eligible for said license. So. Uh, it's really important that we have prompt uh, turnaround on files so that uh, if there is a situation where someone shouldn't have a firearms license, that we address that situation promptly um, to prevent any uh, legal or, or sort of um, quasi-legal access uh, to firearms. I think it's also important to recognize that one of the things that we're, one of the uh, important aspects of our new plan um, with these additional um, human resources is that we will have a dedicated unit addressed to uh, firearms trafficking, straw purchasing, 3D printing, all these uh, activities that uh, illegally supply firearms uh, to the criminal market. And so 
what we will be uh, doing there, of course, you know, we're, we're not the police, but we do have access to all the records and things like that. So we collaborate very closely with police uh, in order to uh, facilitate investigations of uh, those kinds of issues, 3, 3D printing, trafficking, uh, and um, and straw purchasing. So there is a very important public safety aspect to having these additional resources. Yes, it is a uh, a customer service issue, but more importantly, it is a public safety issue because it's critically important that we ensure that everyone that has a firearms license uh, actually qualifies for one. Austin Lee, CTV. Um, this question is for the Premier. Uh, it's just about uh, rent control. We're seeing some other provinces, BC, Ontario, put in place uh, rent control legislation. Why not here in Alberta? Well, in Alberta, we've always believed that uh, the, the market is preferable in the long run because uh, when you have heavy-handed rent control, what happens is landlords don't, in, first of all, companies don't invest in building new housing stock. Uh, and the crisis we have right across the country is uh, housing affordability. So we don't want to uh, disincentivize investment in new housing stock. Also, uh, it forces a lot of landlords to flee the market. Um, Ireland just brought in some very heavy-handed uh, rent control. And uh, you, can, you can look this up. The consequence has been um, a, a majority of Irish landlords are apparently leaving the market. And now nobody can get rental housing. So there are unintended consequences to policies like rent control. Uh, I know that people uh, are struggling with high inflation and the high cost of living. Uh, that's why Alberta's government has stepped up with well over $2 billion of uh, fiscal support, uh, particularly reducing energy costs, abating the provincial fuel tax, providing the electricity rebate, as well as the cap on uh, natural gas uh, prices. And so we're there to support people. Uh, through this challenging time, but um, we don't want to end up... Look, BC has uh, rent control. They also have... It also costs uh, three times more than in Alberta to rent an apartment. So we have a much better functioning housing market. Let's not screw it up. Right. So my follow-up would just be about uh, the recently announced Alberta's calling campaign. I mean, if, if your government's campaign on that front does succeed in bringing people in from places like Toronto, Vancouver. Is there not a concern that rent would would go on the rise steeply here in, in this province? Uh, fair question. But at the end of the day, uh, population growth is essential for our economic future. The biggest reason our Alberta's economy has diversified in recent decades has been uh, that our population doubled. And that created more demand for services, for construction, and, and other sectors of the economy not directly related to oil and gas. So our long-term strategic plan to diversify Alberta depends on uh, population growth with people with diverse skills and talents. Um, we're also facing very serious labor shortages. And uh, that will be expressed in further inflation as it bids up the cost of labor. So, uh, which is a good thing, by the way. I think uh, we should see uh, labor inflation now to, to, re to reflect what's going on in the economy. But in the long run, in the long run, if we want to have affordable living and a diversified economy, we need people for the, here for the jobs of the future. And I, I guess the answer to your 
the problem you've posed is um, we need municipal governments to work with us to streamline zoning, to speed up approvals for uh, both uh, single-family detached residences and multifamily uh, buildings as well. So we need the uh, the we need municipal bureaucracies uh, to. Uh, help us constantly create a larger, uh, more housing stock so that we can meet uh, the future demand. But right now, um, it, I'll just remind you that the cost of housing, both rental and purchase in uh, uh, Edmonton is, and Calgary is about a third of what it is in Vancouver and Toronto. Okay, that wraps up uh, questions from the floor. So we'll just pop over to the operator to put through our first call. We have a question from Catherine Gutkowski of Earth Today. Please go ahead. Thanks so much. So um, you refer to this um, federal gun legislation as virtue signaling, and I understand the office is doing things um, on 3D printing and another drug trafficking, but I'm wondering if you're advocating for any alternative legislation or what, what needs to be done to address gun crime of the people who aren't lawful gun owners. Okay. Um, yeah. So the first thing that uh, they, that needs to be done is to uh, direct the focus of legislation away from imposing more uh, of a burden on law-abiding firearms owners and getting uh, being worried about exactly which types of firearms they own. Uh, if there's somebody who shouldn't have. Uh, firearms. They shouldn't have any kind of firearms. And that's what the entire vetting and screening process is about. So they need to refocus. Uh, and uh, one of the key areas, I think, where uh, additional legislation would be beneficial at the federal level uh, would be to impose uh, some kind of follow-up scheme on people who have uh, firearms prohibition orders. Uh, right now, there are many people who are repeat offenders. They get one firearms prohibition. They get another firearms prohibition. And these people are not um, not monitored, not followed up. Uh, yes, they if they get caught, uh, there will be something done. But if somebody's already had a couple of firearms prohibition orders against them, it suggests to me that that's somebody who needs monitoring because they're highly likely to reoffend. Thanks, Terry. Also, I would say, look, if we look right now, the federal government has a bill in front of the House of Commons that is proposing to remove mandatory minimum penalties for someone who has been convicted of weapons trafficking. So come on. This is not a federal government that's taking this issue seriously, the issue of gun crime seriously. Those who are convicted of a gun crime, those who are involved in organized crime, those who are convicted of weapons trafficking, those folks need to have directions regarding their sentencing from the House of Commons in the criminal code to make sure that those folks are serving the time that needs to be served for them to get out of that cycle of offending and to get out of this criminal behavior. So if the federal government wants to take this seriously, that's the first thing they could do is stop this proposal to remove mandatory minimums for someone who's convicted of weapons trafficking. Second, uh, we can look at all the illegal firearms that are coming across our borders, uh, which the federal government could, could begin to do work on. We have, when we look at our coasts, when we look at our very long land, land uh, border that we share with the United States, the CBSA has a very clear mandate when it comes to our ports of entry, and they do great work at those ports of entry, but there is lack of clarity about what happens in between those ports along the coastline or along our land border crossings with the United States. And the federal government has to provide 
clarity on who's responsible between those ports of entry, who's monitoring, and who's stopping the illegal import of, of firearms between those ports of entry. Thanks, Minister. Catherine, do you have a uh, follow-up to close things off for us today? Yes, absolutely. So I had a question of clarification on the fighting of the petrochemical stuff constitutionally. Um, Off the top, the Premier had mentioned property rights, and I know it's been a point of contention that property rights are not enshrined in the Constitution. So I was just hoping for some clarity on what grounds you intend to to fight this. Sure. Uh, You may have been, uh, or maybe I was responsible for confusing the two issues. When I spoke about property rights, it was in the context of the uh, federal firearms legislation, and that has been addressed by uh, CFO Bryant uh, at some length, uh, that effectively the federal regulations arbitrarily uh, devalue legally acquired property. And that is one of the reasons why uh, we are trying to help people uh, save the value of that legally acquired property through uh, faster processing of these licenses and permits. Uh, on the constitutional challenge, or excuse me, the challenge of the uh, federal petrochemical regulation listing uh, uh, p- plastic substances as toxic under the same category as things like arsenic, um, what they're trying to do there is uh, is to pull a fast one, which is to use their criminal uh, head of power. There's no doubt the federal government has uh, exclusive constitutional authority to legislate on criminal matters. So they're using that exclusive constitutional authority to effectively um, engage in what is normally provincial environmental regulatory authority. So uh, the core of our uh, submission will be that that is ultra vires, uh, the Constitution, because they are getting out of their lane. In that case, it's, it's uh, in pith and substance. It's an environmental regulation dressed up as a uh, criminal law matter. And uh, that's the core of our argument. All right. Thanks, Premier. That wraps things up today.